Dear congregation, our catechism instruction comes to us from question 68 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which I printed for you at the top of your outline. And you can see the question is very short tonight. Uh, I did include question 96 for purposes that will become clear later. But for now, the, the sermon will focus on question 68. How many sacraments did Christ institute in the New Testament? And the answer to holy baptism and the Holy Supper. Now you may be thinking to yourself this evening, is this really a matter for a sermon? To have a sermon on how many sacraments Christ instituted in the New Testament? Uh, is this not uh, easy enough for us just to read it and be done with it? Well, I would certainly, that's how we've uh, grown up in this church, to understand it that way, isn't it? But there's a, a ton of uh, theology packed into that little sentence there. How many sacraments did Christ institute in the New Testament? And I think you'll find this evening, congregation, that we're going to have more to say about that question and the assumptions that are buried right within that question than about the answer, holy baptism and the Lord's Supper. So think with me here about that question, how many sacraments did Christ institute in the New Testament? Because behind that question is the larger question. The larger question of how do we know, how do we answer the question, period, about what we do in this worship service? What, what, what principle do we have that enables us to know, yes, we'll do this, but not that? You see, we need some kind of regulating principle, don't we? Or a kind of regulative principle to help us know what would, we, what would God have us to do in this worship service and what are the things that he would not have us to do. Which things are God-honoring, which things are not God-honoring. How do we come to that decision? Now let me be clear about something here. Every church has a regulative principle. Every church. It's not if you have one, it's what is your regulative principle? I know there are churches out there who may say, well, we just follow the Bible. Or, uh, you know, even the most freewheeling church, right, that, that, uh, that does, you know, they, they don't plan anything, right? Their services are very spontaneous. Even they have some kind of regulating principle, right? And again, uh, if, if, the, if the pastor or one of the elders showed up in a very uh, way that they looked down on, right, they would censor him for that. They would rebuke him for that. So every church has a regulating principle, right? The question not, isn't should we have a regulative principle. The question is which or what is your regulative principle? Can we, can we acknowledge that right from the beginning? That before we are going to tackle this question of how many sacraments did Christ institute, we need to know what is the principle that we're going to use to know what we do and what we don't do. Perhaps one possible regulating principle is attendance. What are the numbers? Should the elders and the council uh, go to the council room and, and just see once how many people are in church? And if the numbers are going up, then we must be doing the right thing. That's one possible regulative principle, right? One possible regulative principle. What about uh, another possible thing would be quite similar, actually, to the first one is polling the congregation, right? What do you like? 
Did, 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 did you like that, what we did in worship on that Sunday? Did that speak to you? Right? We could kind of pull the congregation and ask the congregation. We could use that as a regulative principle. And then, of course, there's the, the last one, right, which is just let the pastor decide. Right? There are, there are churches where the pastor has tremendous power. Right? And he can, he can do whatever he wants in the church. Okay? He's a kind of bishop in the church. And whatever the pastor decides, right, the pastor does. Well, I take it that we all understand that these kinds of regulating principles are not appropriate. They're not God-honoring principles. And in a Reformed church, right, the children have even learned the Latin expression, right, sola scriptura, the Bible alone. Now, sola scriptura applies to everything in the church. So it would include, then, the worship of the church. And so I don't think this is too uh, earth-shaking to know that in this church and in most evangelical churches, the claim is going to be made, right, that we worship according to the regulative principle of Scripture, that the Bible determines what is God-honoring in the worship service and what is not God-honoring. And so our regulative principle is that what the Scripture teaches us, that we do. Now, even there, though, uh, there is some uh, differences of opinion, right? At the time of the Reformation, the Reformers, especially the more Calvinistic side of the Reformation, wanted to insist that what God has commanded us in Scripture is what we should do in worship. The Lutherans had a slightly less strict version of the regulative principle, and they said, if God hasn't forbidden it, then we can do it in scripture, or we can do it in our worship service. So again, if you you know you, you can you can think of churches having a, a a service where they bless the pets, right? They bring their pets to church, and we have a blessing of the pets, right? And in in reformed churches, well, I, I doubt you've ever seen that in a reformed church for obvious reasons, okay? But in a in a Lutheran church, right, where the 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 principle is more loose, then they would say, well, does the Bible forbid it? Since the Bible doesn't forbid it, then as long as we do it in a God-honoring way, then we can have a blessing of the pets or a blessing of the bikes or I've seen also on church signs a blessing of the backpacks, right? Right before the time when school starts. Well, these are all things that people do in churches. And in the Reformed churches, dear congregation, we've settled on this principle, this regulating principle, that we're going to give pride of place to what Scripture commands us to do. So we're not going to ask the question, does Scripture forbid it? I mean, we do ask that question. We do think about that. But we, we think more about what is directly commanded to us in Scripture, either by a, a clear example given us in the, in the New Testament or in the Bible as, as a whole, or what does God command us to do? He explicitly says, do this. Now, that uh, is all what is sort of buried in that question. In question 68 there, how many sacraments did Christ institute? Right? And you can see already that kind of Reformation principle, right? That we are putting more emphasis on what Christ instituted, what he commanded us to do. Why can't we have more sacraments? There are churches today that have oral interpretation, right? Where a person gifted in this art stands in front of the church and he or she uh, interprets physically by their arms motions, 
the, the, the truth of what they are singing or perhaps what is being said. Well, as, 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 as beautiful an art form as that may be in other contexts, right, our regulative principle doesn't allow that because we don't find either an example or a command in the Bible of that kind of thing. So we don't have that in our worship services. And again, you see that already in that uh, question 68, how many sacraments did Christ institute? The assumption there being that if Christ didn't institute it, we're not going to do it. Do you hear that tonight, already in that question? And again, that's now why you can see I included question 96, because in the Reformed churches, we have leaned hard on the second commandment, that God wants us to worship him in the ways that he has commanded us to worship. And you can see that in the answer given to question 96. Well, so much then for the catechism. Is that biblical? Is that a scriptural thing? I mean, here I just said, right, that we're going to govern our church by the principles of sola scriptura. So where does the Bible teach us that? We're not going to hold to this unless we have a thus saith the Lord, that the Bible actually teaches us that this is how we're to regulate the worship in our churches. Well, let's begin in the Old Testament with the story that we read today, because this story is illustrative of the regulative principle that was in the Old Testament times. So here you have Nadab and Abihu, and they are the sons of Aaron. Now, it would have been nice, actually, to have read some of the previous chapters uh, because you kind of get more of the context. But basically what has happened in chapter 9, if you have your Bible open, you can see that at the close of what they did, at the inauguration, at this the first time the temple ritual was going to be performed, the first time these sacrifices were going to be offered, you can see at the very last verse of chapter 9 and verse 24, then fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. You'll remember that the sacrifices in the Old Testament often had a part that was set aside for God. The choicest portions of of, and again, it would, it would dictate exactly what those portions were, were to be cut out, placed on the altar, and offered up to God. That was God's portion. Well, the first time that happened, they didn't even need to light the fire because fire came down out of heaven, and God himself, by that stroke of, of divine power and majesty, or that, that manifestation of power, the bolt of fire came blazing down out of heaven and consumed what was on the altar. And again, you can see the effect on the people was dramatic. They fell on their faces and shouted. And I think that's a shout for joy. They saw, graphically represented before them, the power of God and his acceptance of the sacrifice that they had offered up. Now, Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron, uh, the oldest, two oldest sons of Aaron, would have been filled with astonishment, right, and joy and exhilaration at what just had happened. And perhaps out of the exhilaration of that moment, Nadab and Abihu agree, they they talk amongst themselves, and they say, let's offer up incense to God. And congregation, I don't think that there's anything in the text that leads us to believe that they had some kind of sinister motive or evil motive here. That they had a a legitimate motive here, a, a good motive to honor God in light of what he had just done. And so they take their fire pans, these little uh, things that they would have burned incense in. They start a little fire in it, you sprinkle the incense on it, and that lovely uh, 
aroma of that incense burning arises up to God. Now, obviously, this was strange fire, it says in verse 1, and which God had not commanded them. Well, you can say, well, did God forbid them to do it? Well, no. But God hadn't commanded it. Do you see the difference now? God had not commanded them to do this. Now, if we look more closely, we can see some of the hints here at what the problem was. First of all, I put on the outline there, Moses, question mark. You wonder, did Nadab and Abihu never stop to ask themselves, should we check with Moses first? After all, Moses is the one who gave us such a detailed list of instructions. Should we not check with Moses just to get his green light first before we do this? Well, they didn't do that. But then you'll also notice that it says they took their respective fire pans, which seems to imply that they went and got their own fire pans. But remember, dear congregation, that everything in the service of the tabernacle had to be sanctified. Again, I have the, the, the verses here. Oh, I put them on the outline there. You can look that up in Leviticus 8, verse 11. There's detailed instructions for how every fork, every pan, Every bowl, every utensil has to be sanctified for use in the tabernacle. And is it possible that Nadab and Abihu didn't bother with that, but went and got their own fire pan that had not been sanctified for the use in the tabernacle? Then we read that they put fire in them. And we read that it was strange fire. Again, what fire? In Leviticus 16.12 which, of course, is is after this happened. But still, we must believe that these instructions had been given prior. The fire is to come from the altar of burnt offering. That fire is to be kept perpetually burning. And if you need fire, uh, which you do for many of the different rituals in the tabernacle and later in the temple, that fire has to come from the burnt offering. But this was strange fire. Is it possible that they just provided their own fire? What incense? Again, detailed directions. I give you the the references there in Exodus. What incense? They were supposed to use a specific kind of incense. There was even a recipe for what was to go in that incense. So much of this, so much of that, a little of this. But is it possible that Nadab and Abihu threw aside those directions and just took incense of whatever kind, maybe their own recipe, and they offered that up before the Lord? At any rate, congregation, whether it was one of these things or a combination of these things, This was an abomination to God. Why? Not because he had not forbidden it, but because he had not commanded it. God had not told them to do this. And the Old Testament regulative principle was if God hasn't commanded it, you do not do it. That's why you have so many list after list after list in the Old Testament law of detailed instructions of exactly what you are to do in the worship of God. The, Nadab, the story of Nadab and Abihu and their death indicates to us that uh, the regulative principle in the Old Testament was very strict and very detailed. Now we come to the New Testament. In the New Testament, clearly a change happens. The Old Testament ceremonial laws are done away with. So we might think then, like the Lutherans, that well now it is more or less left up to the conscience of each believer and each church as a whole to craft a worship service that is God-honoring, and, 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 and basically we use our own sanctified minds to, to design a worship service. 
But my friends, not so fast on that point. Not so fast. And this, again, the Reformed people say there are hints in the New Testament that even though the detailed lists and instructions, right, the blow-by-blow account that God gave of worship in the Old Testament is not entirely done away with. Yes, we don't have detailed lists given us in the New Testament of what to do and what not to do. But we do have, we do have the instruction that Jesus gives in Matthew 15. And in Matthew 15, what's the problem? In Matthew 15, Jesus is arguing with the scribes and the Pharisees. The Pharisees want to say, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And Jesus responds to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? In other words, your tradition has gone to such an extent, right? tradition being man-made tradition, that it actually now violates the commandment of God. In other words, if you keep your tradition, if you observe your tradition, you end up violating the command of God. And so Jesus speaks very negatively about their traditions. He gives an example in verse 4, Matthew 15 and verse 4, that the law of God says, honor your father and your mother. But you Pharisees and scribes say, whoever says to his father and mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God, he is not to honor his father or his mother. To put it in very contemporary expressions, you have an elderly parent and you're caring for them, you're providing for them, but you say, well, mom, dad, the money I would use to provide for you, I'm putting in the collection plate at church, so sorry I can't take care of you now, right? Because I've actually devoted that money to God. And the Pharisees and scribes said that, yes, that's what you should do with that money because you should give it to God before you give it to your parents. And Jesus is saying, that's a disaster. That's contradicting the law of God. If you keep that commandment, you're going to end up, or if you keep that tradition, you're going to end up violating the fifth commandment, which says, honor your father and your mother. Which means, which certainly means that if they're elderly and they're decrepit and unable to care for themselves, you have the responsibility to care for them. And you can't hide from that responsibility by taking your money and saying, well, I'm giving it to a good cause over here. Jesus says your tradition's violating the commandment of God. So again, you see that this kind of man-made religion, Jesus is objecting to because it violates the law of God. Again, a, 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 a negative commentary from Jesus on human traditions. Now there's another verse that in the New Testament is given us in Colossians 2 and verse 21. In Colossians 2 and verse 21, Paul talks about a self-made religion. Colossians 2 and verse 21. And Paul, in this context here, he's talking about all these rules that the Jewish Christians had in the city of Colossae. Uh, He talks about them in verse 21. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with the use, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. Do you hear that? The commandments and teachings of men. These are matters, he says now in verse 23, these are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body. 
You hear what Paul is saying there. He says, you people have all these rules about don't touch this, don't handle that, don't taste this. But he says, how much of that actually comes from what the law of God commands you to do? Or is that a self-made religion? You're putting this self-made austerity upon yourself, trying to be extra severe with yourself. Maybe that makes you feel better. I'm, a, I'm kind of a super Christian this way. But Paul says, that's just a self-made religion. God didn't command you that. You've made that up for yourself. And he says it's, it's, it's not helpful. It's not a good thing in the Christian life. Well, now, the Reformed fathers and the Reformed churches have read verses like these and said, yes, the dispensation from the Old Testament time has changed. We no longer have detailed lists of what we are to do in the worship service. But God still wants us to give pride of place in our regulating principle of worship to those things which he has commanded us. Now you can say, well, where, is, where do I go in the New Testament to find a list of things to do in worship and not to do? Well, you're not going to find that. That, was more, that more belonged to the Old Testament dispensation. Under the New Testament times, we comb the New Testament and we look for those things which God commanded us to do or which we find clearly represented in the example of the apostles. And those are the things that we, that we you might say, focus on. Now when I go to the church order of the United Reformed Churches. Oh, I'm sorry, first let me explain that distinction between elements and circumstances. This is language that you'll often hear. Now this is not biblical language. This is a distinction that helps us to put into practice what the Bible teaches us. And so an element is one of those things that God has commanded us to do in worship. The important things, let's just call them that. The important things. The things that if we left out, it would not be what God has commanded us to do. The circumstances are all the more minor details that, of course, any church has to settle on. So again, look at the, the, order, or the church order of the United Reformed Churches here. Notice that it says the consistory, that is the elders, shall regulate the worship services which shall be conducted according to the principles taught in God's word. Do you hear that? The principles. That wouldn't have worked in the Old Testament, right? In the Old Testament, it would have said, just do what it says. It's spelled out for you in detail. In the New Testament times, according to the principles taught in God's word, namely that the preaching of the word have the central place, confession of sins be made, praise and thanksgiving in song and prayer be given, and gifts of gratitude be offered. Now that would be a list of what I, what I just said are elements. Those are the essential parts of a worship service. All the other things are circumstances. In what order, at what time, which translation of the Bible, which hymn book to use, and all these things are circumstances. But the, those things are the elements. So my friends, this is our regulating principle of worship that we use in the Reformed churches. Let's take a few examples then. The obvious one, right, that so many churches struggle hard with is, what about the songs we should sing? Well, again, going in our church order, you'll notice that it says, Article 39, the 150 psalms shall have the principal place in the singing of the churches. Why? Why should the, why should the psalms have the principal place in the, in the worship services? Well, because think of the regulating principle that we have here, right? That pride of place is to be given to those things which are directly given us by God. And when I open the word of God, what do I find right smack in the middle of the Bible? A psalm book, a hymn book full of the praises of God. Now, what should we do with that? 
I think we should sing them. I think we should sing them in our worship services. And in the Reformed churches, we've always given pride of place to the Psalms, right? That's why in, a, in the old hymn book and in the new hymn book, right, you find renderings for every single one of the Psalms. And we do that for a very important reason, because it's directly given us in the Scripture. And so we give pride of place to those songs. Those are, by the way, not the only songs that we sing, right? There are those Christians who are what we call exclusive psalmodists, right? And they only will sing the psalms in their worship service. Well, uh, in, the, in, the, uh, in most Reformed churches, right, you will find that the psalms have the, the primary place, but that other hymns are included. Uh, and again, I, I won't go into the whole case for that, but when you think of a verse like Colossians 2, it says, let the word of God dwell in you richly, singing in your heart psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to the Lord. So let me say it again. Let the word of God dwell in you richly, singing. Right? It doesn't say let the psalms dwell in you richly. Right? The whole word of God. Old Testament psalms, yes, but New Testament songs as well. Again, there's much more to be said about that, but just to give you the biblical basis for why we are not exclusive psalm singers in this church. Now, the next case, the next case is, uh, that I put here is, may we use visual illustrations in the worship service? Object lessons. Every teacher here knows that object lessons are so very important in teaching. May we not use such things in the worship service. Well, if you've been following me up till this point, this is now a, an obvious question. Of course we may use them. We may use every single one that Christ has instituted. And now we're back to our question again, are we? How many sacraments or object lessons or visual illustrations of gospel truth has Christ instituted in the New Testament? Now it's an obvious question, isn't it? Because we just look in the New Testament. Jesus says, go into all the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. To his disciples, he said, do this in remembrance of me, having just instituted the Lord's Supper. And so, yes, we certainly may have these object lessons, but only those which Christ has instituted. And I trust now, my friends, you see something of, of the mind of the Reformed churches on this important Point. I come to my first application. My friends, what a liberating principle this is. A liberating principle. Some people think of it as very constricting. It's actually, I believe, very liberating. Because, you know, we don't really need to have a worship committee in the church. We don't really need to spend a great deal of time designing a worship service. It's actually quite simple some combination of the elements of worship, preaching, confession of sin, hymn singing, prayer, the giving of alms. And whatever order we do it in, yes, we can discuss that and we can do this or that, right? Which songs we're going to sing, which hymn book will we choose, right? Those things need to be discussed and decided on. But by and large, Reformed worship is very simple. It's very uncomplicated. 
I don't spend a lot of time at all planning the worship service. It's all been done here, and I'm quite happy with the order of worship that we have. Just so long as all those elements are included. But I believe that's liberating. I believe it saves us a lot of difficulty. Churches have been torn apart. Maybe you've even heard these expressions like worship wars, right? Where where churches go to battle over what they're going to do in their worship services. And I'm thankful and, and even, if I can say, humbly proud of our own regulating principle because it relieves us of all that difficulty. And we can just have a simple, you know, if, if we ever, God forbid, had a time in this nation where the Christian religion was banned or, or persecuted, right? We wouldn't have to worship in this service. We could worship without a piano and an organ. We could worship without all these things, right? We could gather in the woods and have a worship service. I think that's something to be thankful for. My second point of application is this, my friends, grace. And I mean by that that we should show grace and a a certain measure of tolerance to the elders of the church as they put forth and as they make decisions on worship in the church. Those are, those. even though I said our services are relatively uncomplicated, still there are all these circumstances that have to be decided on. And I think it's important that we as a church think carefully about uh, sometimes those decisions will upset us. They're very difficult decisions to be made there. Uh, and, and I know this almost seems a little contradictory to the previous one, but I think if we look at the regulative principle that we've received in the Reformed churches that our fathers have handed down to us, right? we should respect the, the process and the decisions that the, uh, the elders and the deacons have to make in regard to this and and be as gracious as we possibly can be in that regard. It's, it's, It's not always easy. Remember that if we all worshiped exactly the way we wanted to, we'd all be worshiping alone, right? We'd all be worshiping in a house somewhere with just my family, right? But God calls us to look and to observe and to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace amongst all the people of God. And so let's not let these discussions over the circumstances of worship tear us apart. Lastly, my friends, the last application, and this the most important. See the goodness of God in what he has done for us. And now we've heard this many times already, haven't we, having discussed the sacraments, what, two or three times now already in the catechism sermons, but we come back to it again and again. My friends, see the goodness of God, that he not only preaches to us, the promise of the gospel, but that he also shows us. Show me a sign, the psalmist said. And we read that. And we read in scripture that Jesus was rich, but he became poor, that we through his poverty might be made rich. And now God takes that truth, that beautiful truth which we understand with our minds, and he gives us two signs, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And he says, he says to the congregation, he says, come just like you do with your own children. Come, see, look. This is the gospel represented before you in an object lesson. And you can see it in the broken bread, in the poured out wine. And then the Lord Jesus Christ, he preaches to us. He says, as surely, as surely as I have promised you that when you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, so surely are all your sins forgiven you. And he preaches it to us 
and he shows it to us. But now, my friends, as parents, we look and we see our children. And we see maybe even infant children. And we think, Lord, is there any promise of grace for them? And now we come specifically to the two sacraments that God gives us. And he says, yes, also them. Also for that, also for that little infant child that knows nothing of what is happening. God says, take that child. Bring that child to the baptismal font. Sprinkle water on that child as a testimony to my grace and my mercy towards that child. Now that's a precious thing, my friends. See the goodness of God that he gives us two. One for our entrance on the Christian life, baptism. But also he does not leave us. He does not get us started and then abandon us. But see the goodness of God in providing for us a sacrament that recurs on a regular basis for our strengthening, that when we faint, when we stumble in our Christian life, when we see uh, maybe so many obstacles and so many challenges, my friends, even when we see death itself, when we can feel our body beginning to loosen and decline, God comes to us again and he says, Here's a table. And he says, broken bread and poured out wine to strengthen you upon the way to eternal life. To keep your faith strong so that you can't just hear it, but you see it. My friends, when we come to stand before God one day, when we stand before the all-seeing eye of the judge of heaven and earth, what will you say? He sees every sin that you've ever committed. I think, my friends, that in that hour, your mind will go back to what took place many times in church here. Perhaps you just kind of floated over it. After all, it's just a routine. We've done it so many times. But in that hour, my friends, in that dying hour, when you know you're about to cross from life, out of this life, and into the next, the memory of what took place here so many times can give you so much strength. And you can say, Lord, I have enough sin in me that you could justly send me to hell forever. Are you willing to confess that this evening? But Lord, tonight or whenever it may be, I place my hand upon that one sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Oh, that's such a precious thing, my friends. Because death is a frightening thing. It's an intimidating thing. But in that hour, my friends, you can place your hand upon what was represented here to your eyes so many times. Maybe even the preaching of it will, you'll forget but you won't forget so quick what you saw. And you can say, Lord, I take my stand upon that one sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. I have nothing else to stand on. And my friends, you can be sure that God will recognize that sacrifice and all your sins will be forgotten, cast behind God's back, and he will admit you into his glorious presence. I ask you, dear friends, this evening, are you resting?
Are you resting on that one sacrifice of Christ tonight? Before God and before your own conscience, are you resting on that one sacrifice uh, of Christ? I can't help but think of that hymn tonight. I close with that. Abide with me. And what does it say in the last verse? Hold thou thy cross before my dying eye. I'm not getting it exactly right, but something along those lines. Hold thou thy cross. That's, that's beautiful. And that's your only hope, my friends. And it's my privilege tonight to proclaim that to you. Not just in the preaching of the word, but as we have opportunity in the blessed sacraments that God has set before our eyes to him be the glory. Let us pray. Lord, you have been so good to us that even as we pass through this life and we face many challenges, many temptations, we backslide, we go forward, we fall back, we tremble with fear sometimes. But in all these cases, Lord, you've given us this picture, these two object lessons, sprinkled water upon a sinful child and broken bread and poured out wine as symbols of your death. Lord, we we have even right now in our mind's memory the image of those things in our heads, and it brings us so much comfort and so much assurance that no matter how bad our sins may have been in our life, no matter how deep we may have fallen, that the sacrifice of Christ is infinitely sufficient to cleanse the very vilest sinner. Lord, when we come before that hour, when our life is ebbing away, when we are in that room in the hospice, when we are on our deathbed, Lord, we sing with the church, hold thou thy cross before my eye. That we may see, Lord, that all our salvation is bound up in that one sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And that we might take great hope and comfort from that rock, which is a rock of ages. Nothing can shake it. Bless us, Lord, and keep us. Bless us also as young people as we gather together this evening. Will you bless our time together? And all this we ask in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Let's turn and close now our service by singing from the Blue Hymnal, number 205. 205, the tender love a father has for all his children dear. We'll sing the five verses of number 205 in the Blue Hymnal.
receive the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Amen.